X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, November 10th. Psst, it's a good day to subscribe to The Local. Today, back in the day, November 10th, 1959, Oregonian newspaper workers began a strike that would eventually create the Portland Reporter. It was the third largest newspaper strike in U.S. history. 59 workers walked out of the Oregonian and began a picket outside. They were protesting newspaper consolidation and monopolies as well as new printing technology and layoffs. Within three months, the strikers had been joined by 850 members of 11 newspaper unions. Tensions culminated in January 1960 when dynamite was set off in six newspaper delivery trucks in Oregon City and four trucks in Portland. Fights erupted on the picket line and Oregonian production manager Don Newhouse was shot. A year into the strike, a group of labor unions established the Portland Reporter as an alternative to the Oregonian. Some journalists left the Oregonian for the Portland Reporter, including Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Wallace Turner and editor John Wyckoff. The Portland Reporter lasted for several years, but in the end couldn't compete. Eventually, the Oregonian and the Oregon Journal banned unions from their shops. The Oregon Journal would also eventually close, but that is for another day back in the day. Today, back in the day, November 10th, 1989, Germans began to tear down the Berlin Wall. That wall divided capitalist West Berlin from Soviet East Berlin and surrounding East Germany. Starting in 1961, the wall physically and ideologically separated the two sections of the city. It prevented refugees from escaping to West Berlin and general freedom of movement between the two territories. The fall of the Berlin Wall was a major landmark in the Cold War, often signifying the United States' triumph over the Soviet Eastern Bloc. One KGB officer stationed at the wall at that time. Seeing the wall fall and later needing to defend KGB headquarters without support from Moscow forever impacted his worldview and his relationship with the West. That young officer, Vladimir Putin. Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with Suzette Smith on post-election protests. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Oregon's elections director Steve Trout stepped down on Friday amid the final push to count ballots and certify the results. In a memo sent to both candidates for secretary of state, Trout said the elections division had suffered from a lack of strategic vision and plans for the agency and staff are not focused due to that lack of vision and leadership. In the memo, he said the elections division had been denied critical resources despite partnerships with federal agencies. He outlined 12 specific upgrades he'd requested for the state election systems that had not been funded. The projects included a replacement for the state's Orshar website, security upgrades, and fixing dozens of bugs within election systems. Trout's memo said, Some of our election systems are running on Windows Server 2008. End-of-life mainstream support for Microsoft ended back on January 13, 2015, and all support ended on January 14, 2020. Our public-facing websites are single-threaded through one power supply on the Capitol Mall and one internet connection. There is no redundancy or resiliency or plan to provide either. Trout's deputy, Michael Teed, is now in charge of the Elections Division and will be in charge of certifying election results. And now your daily dose of data. Oregon's infection rate is on the rise. On Monday, 770 new cases of COVID-19 were reported. There have now been a total of 51,155 COVID-19 cases since the pandemic began. There were six new COVID-related deaths. That makes a total of 734 deaths from the virus. Generally, tests were coming back positive at a rate of 4.5%, but in the last week, we saw that rate increase to 5.6%. Hospitalizations are skyrocketing as well. Officials believe the cold weather is driving people inside where the virus likes to spread. 
Governor Brown has implemented what she is calling a two-week pause for five counties that will start tomorrow. These counties are Malheur, Umatilla, Jackson, Marion, and Multnomah. New regulations during the pause include no groups larger than six in public spaces. Restaurants, bars, gyms, and bowling alleys will max out at 50 people inside, and that number includes staff. And visits to long-term care facilities must be outside only. After two weeks, if the infection rates decrease, these counties will be allowed to return to normal COVID regulations. And in Washington, there have now been a total of 117,331 COVID-19 cases. The state has seen a total of 2,439 deaths from the disease. Still waiting on waiting week money? You may be getting a check around Thanksgiving. In March, the federal government put an end to the unemployment waiting week, which is the week between when people traditionally lose their jobs and the week they start to receive unemployment benefits. Oregon has suffered from a myriad of issues getting unemployment money out to people. This has been only one of them. The Oregon Employment Department announced last week that they're on track to complete these waiting week payments just in time for Thanksgiving. Oregon is the only state that hasn't paid the waiting week money yet. The Department of Labor recently indicated that Oregon would forfeit the funds if they are not distributed by the end of the year. Governor Brown has been under pressure from Senator Wyden and others in our congressional delegation to speed up those payments. One of the reasons the payments have taken so long? The department's out-of-date computers, an issue they're hoping to fix before sending out those payments. Nearly 600,000 Oregonians have filed regular unemployment claims since March, and the state has paid benefits to nearly 380,000 of them. In a statement on Sunday, Senator Wyden said he is pleased the Employment Department is committed to paying the waiting week benefits this month. It appears that it's processing new claims faster. Protesters vandalized the Multnomah County Democratic headquarters on Sunday night. No presidents read one piece of graffiti spray-painted on the side of the building. A group gathered at Laurelhurst Park before marching to the Democratic HQ. Twelve windows were broken. Other bits of graffiti included Black Lives Matter slogans and criticisms of President-elect Joe Biden. The event was promoted in solidarity with ongoing racial justice protests. It expressed dissatisfaction with the moderate candidates that the party chose to support. Earlier in the day, protesters also vandalized the Democratic Party of Oregon's headquarters with the word shame and an anti-fascist symbol. Three people were arrested Sunday night on suspicion of criminal mischief. The street racers are back, and boy, howdy are they. Hundreds of street racers took over Portland streets and bridges on Sunday night. Around 8 p.m., more than 400 vehicles and even more spectators gathered around North Airport Way and 122nd. They briefly took over the top deck of the Fremont Bridge and the Interstate Bridge, as well as a few major intersections. People were seen riding on hoods of cars, doing donuts around the Goodwill on Northeast Sandy. Portland police say that street racing has been an ongoing problem in recent years. 16 cars were towed, 14 people arrested over the course of the night. Arrestees included people from all across the West Coast. Dominic Toretto and Brian O'Connor, nowhere to be found. Eight others were ticketed, and there were two crashes that night, but nobody injured. Get your masks and goggles because Oregon ski resorts are opening soon. This winter is going to bring cooler and wetter weather, despite a relatively warm, dry autumn. So, get your skis and snowboards out because resorts are opening soon. Mount Bachelor will be opening December 7th, while the state's other ski areas will make their calls based on snow conditions. You can expect mandatory masks in areas such as ski lifts, lodges, ticket lines, and rental shops. Resorts also plan to limit ticket sales during peak days in order to mitigate crowd sizes. Each ski lodge has their own specific COVID requirements, though, so check online in order to stay safe. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. And now we are joined by Suzette Smith, a former arts editor and current freelancer for the Portland Mercury. 
She'll be speaking with Jefferson Smith about the downtown protests following the elections. Suzette, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. You posted a number of videos from the protests on Wednesday. Uh, were you on the ground? Were you filming those videos? Were you getting them from various sources? Oh, uh, let me think. Wednesday was the day after the election. That was the 4th, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, I was on the ground filming those videos, yeah. What is people's attitude towards journalists right now? Are you wearing a press vest? Are you somehow clear, clarifying who you are? Is the camera enough? Oh, I always clarify who I am, but I also am... I think I've said in the past, lit up like a journalistic Christmas tree. Uh, not so much for the protesters, because I've been covering the protests since, oh, I'd, June. Um, so they all know who I am. But when it comes to uh, police, uh, I, I want them to be very clear that I'm a press person so that they don't arrest me. Any changes you've seen? What were the what, were, what have you noted since the election day? in the protests, a, a re-energization, re-energizing, a shift in the energy? What are you seeing? Well, it depends what, like from where uh, that that would be. Definitely, we saw a level of force from police on Wednesday night that I haven't seen really since June, just like the level of zeal of like it feeling like they were having fun that, that we really haven't seen in, in a while. Uh, and that was pretty scary um, just to be on the receiving end of it, even though I felt fairly protected by the ACLU's uh, temporary restraining order. Um, although actually, I don't know, yeah, uh, because of Kate Brown's uh, unified command, which is combining the power of the Oregon State Police and Multnomah County Police to control the Portland Police Bureau, that might not be like I did. I wasn't super sure if I was protected, but um, I would say like certainly there was a lot of breaking windows and then those broken windows were met with pretty swift and forceful, like pretty massive amounts of officers in riot gear, just, you know, charging down the street, chasing us for blocks. At one point I know I tweeted like my shoes untied and that was like, just like, my shoe was untied and we were just running. We were just running for blocks. And I just was pretty sure I was going to fall on my face, but luckily I didn't. Yeah, in your article you reported that windows were broken at Hoxton's lovely Rita restaurant, the Roseland, Roseland Theater, excuse me, in St. Andre, St. Andre Bassett Church. Uh, is that, how frequent have broken windows been going down? Uh, you said the significant response, and I want to ask you about the Cape Brown's unified command order and help people understand that. Uh, but there was also a question that came in. Was there a specific reason that these businesses were targeted that you could see, or was it just sort of a random deal? Yeah, certainly it was difficult watching those businesses, their windows be broken, because that's my home. Like, Old Town is my town. That's where I live. And it's always kind of difficult when somebody breaks a window in your town. Um, I don't think that those were targeted, because I just don't understand why anyone would break the windows of a church that, does things for homeless people. I really think that that was just like, I don't know really what, what is behind people in black block breaking windows. I understand that property destruction gets attention. Anyone who's covered an environmental protest knows that no one will pay attention to a protest unless there's violence of some kind or like a huge crowd. Um, and by violence, I mean property destruction, which is different, but, uh, 
Yeah, I don't believe that they were targeted. I think that they were just in the way. Um, I can't imagine what people have against the Roseland. Like, it's just a just this music venue and it hasn't even been open in a long time. Maybe they miss it and they broke windows because they miss it so much. I don't know. You said black block. I think a lot of people are familiar with that, but I think there's some people who aren't explain what that is. Sure. Um, black block is like wearing black identity, obscuring clothing, like over, you maybe you're wearing a ski mask and a black, a long sleeve black shirt and black gloves, something, everything to just obscure your identity. It makes it difficult to say who is doing these actions. Uh, and it also, in my, in my experience, makes it difficult to, it, it means that almost anyone can join the march and act in it, which I think is something of a issue. It's difficult to know if these are, you know, we've had reports in other cities of bad actors being dressed in black block and breaking windows. And then it turns out that maybe they weren't even people associated with the movement. And I think that there's some validity to that idea, but it's difficult to know when everyone is dressed up in identity obscuring, obscuring clothing. And this is and this is not a new move, right? We know this was happening. We know know this was happening during Vietnam era protests, where in fact not only it wouldn't have to just be some conservative activist, but in fact a member of the FBI, a member of COINTELPRO, somebody who was actually uh, engaged trying to discredit. Uh, social justice protesting that would do that discrediting by pretending to be among them and doing something or persuading protesters to do things that will reduce their rhetorical power, reduce their persuasion, and in fact, give them less credit. Uh, what is, is there a growing conversation within the local protest movement about how strategically to address that? Sure. I'm a press person and a known press person. I am a little bit locked out of the discussions that happen when it comes to what they're going to do next. Uh, wow. I'm very much an observing eye, but I, they are uh, protesters in general feel a little suspicious of press. And, and so I'm not always like in those rooms with them. Yeah. When you let's talk about, but I, I do think, and I'll just say, and you don't have to say it, but I do think that this is uh, that that protests figuring out how to be strategic, how to yield the uh, results they want, even if it's not a particular policy result, even if it's just the mass awareness result they want, is it? I think I find a fascinating and critically important question, uh, and I find a lot of the rhetorical architecture around it that has grown up really since Occupy. Uh, to say, well, don't police how people protest. People should be able to allow to protest however they want to uh, is is a, an effective rhetorical block towards, well, yeah, but let's make sure, you know, what would Martin Luther King do? What would, what would Mohandas Gandhi do? Uh, and, uh, and anyway, I find it a really interesting topic that continues to, you know, be among the top stories here in Portland. Feel free to respond to that or push back or offer additional thoughts. Otherwise, though, would love to hear about your thoughts on Kate Brown's unified command. Explain that. Sure. Uh, I guess like something interesting to add to what you said is that on election night, uh, when you had a march of, you know, anywhere from like 700 to 1,000 people marching through Southeast, where, where I don't believe any windows were broken, people just marched and, and there were speeches and people chanted names. Um, there, you had somebody right at the beginning of the march saying, like, I don't want to police your protests, but please don't break any small business windows. Yeah. And since Southeast is, a lot of those are, you know, in, independently owned businesses, like, 
you didn't really see that. And that was also like, uh, I don't know how pleased people were with that protest. Sometimes people aren't pleased with marches that are just marches. But also, you know, Black Lives Matter is an interesting idea because the Black Lives Matter movement is literally, like, it's an umbrella. Everyone with very different ideas came together underneath. And so you were always going to have so many people with so many different ideas pulled together by this one idea, by this one concept that they all feel strongly about, but they also feel very differently about whether or not it's okay to break property or whether, you know, whether just a march that's very long and that, you know, that engages a lot of people, whether or not that's enough, sort of, you're having a lot of ideas. Uh, when it comes to unified command, boy, um, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know that that I'm like a person to that really has like that much knowledge to speak on it, other than what I said that it's it was something that happened. Um, it has to do with Kate Brown's uh, emergency order for the city, where. It, it sort of allows, one thing it does is it allows them to use tear gas if they would like to, because um, the Portland Police Bureau has been, uh, they're no longer allowed to use tear gas um, on protesters. And so with the state police and the Multnomah County Police overseeing the Portland Police Bureau, they are permitted to use tear gas. And it's like kind of another maneuver that didn't, because there was a bit of a debacle with uh with giving Portland police officers federal uh, federal powers and then that being difficult to rescind. Uh, I think that this is just another approach to kind of allowing Portland police to use tear gas, but at the same time, it also gives them huge numbers. It gives them just like a lot of resources to draw on. Um, eventually that night they brought in the National Guard, but then when the National Guard came in, it didn't, it, of, it often seems like it's very personal with the Portland Police Bureau. Like our uh, local activist, Max Smith, uh, has said before in, in speeches to the police, you know, this is such an odd situation because we're protesting you. We're trying to cut your budget. You know, the protesters are trying to cut the budget of the Portland Police Bureau. And so it's so odd to have them in this directly confrontational situation. Um, whereas, you know, the National Guard has no skin in the game. They they can come in and just completely impartially do their job. So that was way more of a controlled pushing back across the expressway. Um, and that seemed to have like less of a, of a zeal to it. What are you watching for now? Thank you again for spending this time with us. We're talking to Suzette Smith, uh, who is a freelancer of the Portland Mercury uh, and has been watching the protest, former arts editor. Uh, what are you watching for now? What should other people be watching for? Sure. Are you saying, like, as in what will happen now? Yeah, or what do you? Uh, what questions still remain? I mean, I could imagine, like, what's going to happen to the protests? How's the mayor going to react now the mayor's won re-election? What's the... Uh, how is it going to work now if Kate Brown's going to be trying to run protest control herself? What's the uh, how are protesters going to decide to police themselves if they are? I'm just wondering if there are questions in your mind that you're trying to come to grips with as you watch the protests. Sure. I think that how the coronavirus unfolds will have mm-hmm. a lot to do with it. Um, the protests in themselves are hugely influenced by how the coronavirus is impacting our society uh, as people return to work 
the protest numbers dwindled. So if there's, you know, another situation where there's another shutdown, we might end up with more protest numbers. Um, if there's another incident, like what happened in, well, it's strange to say, like, if there's another incident, because we just had an incident happen in, uh, in Vancouver, Washington, with, um, with a, a black man being killed by uh, Vancouver police. But um, it, it seems like there's always a huge response to those situations. Um, when it comes to right-wing response, uh, like Patriot Prayer, it seems like because of the way the election was spread out, I don't know that we will see any sort of huge action from them. I think that the, the election week kind of confused people and made it difficult to have like one night where uh, conservative uh, alt-right uh, voters really rallied. They, they sort of did a rally on Saturday, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's difficult to call. We're, we're kind of off the, the board, although better, better uh, people who have better studied history might have a better idea. Well, Suzette Smith, thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us today. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Suzette, for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.